This morning we're going to be continuing in our exposition of the Gospel of John. So you guys can take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 7. We're going to look at 37 through 52. John 7, 37 through 52. I think I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Chapter 7, verse 37 through 52. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, When they heard, speaking of the crowd of the people, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And it says in 43, So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone before him, or had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then the Pharisees replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, that is the text we're going to look at today. The Apostle John now takes us to the last day of the Feast of Booths. So this is the last day of the Feast of Booths. And and Jesus' teachings on this last day are recorded in our text, chapter 7, verses 37 through 52, and in chapter 8, verse 12 through 59. So those two sections of Scripture contain Jesus' teachings and ministry on the last day of the feast. We skip chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, because that occurred on a previous day. But we already preached on that last time I was in the pulpit. So we won't go back over that section. It was the story of the adulterous woman. In these teachings on the last day, Jesus covers six major themes, which we will attempt to go over in six sermons, Lord willing. Uh, Sometimes God adds or subtracts, but we're going to try to do pretty much all that He taught on this last day in six sermons because there's six themes. This morning we're going to look at the first major theme, which is rivers of living water. And I've divided this section or this theme into two sections. I've got section one, which we see in 37 through 39, and in that section we see the invitation. Jesus makes an invitation. And then in section two, which would be verses 40 through 52, the rest of it, uh, we're going to look at the response. 
That would be the response of those in the crowd. So let's begin with section one, the invitation. And I'm going to pick it up at verse 37. You ready to go? You ready to take notes? Ready to rock and roll? Ready for country? Ready for hillbilly? I don't even know what that means. 37, on the last day of the feast. Okay, there it is. We're being signified. It's, it's being signified. We're being told this is the last day. On the last day of the feast. And by the way, it's a week-long feast. On the last day of the feast. And notice what John calls it, the great day. Interesting, right? The great day. And it says, Jesus stood up and cried out, yelled at the top of his lungs, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this verse draws our attention to one of the most memorable parts of the week-long Feast of Booths, and that would be the daily water ceremony, which included prayers for rain. For six days, a water parade took place each morning. This, this whole ceremony, this whole feast went on for a whole week, but every morning it pretty much began with a water parade. The high priest would lead a procession of religious leaders, and they would walk in line over to the Pool of Siloam, which wasn't far away. And when they got to that pool, they would fill a large basin with water. Not too large, because they had to carry it, but they would fill a basin with water. Now, several rabbinic traditions identify the Pool of Siloam as Messiah's pool. So the Pool of Siloam is thought of as the Messiah's pool. Uh, so when you think of this pool of water, think of it, it has to do with you know, healing power, it has to do with Messiah, it has to do with those sorts of things. So it's Messiah's pool. So they would walk to this thing in line, they would go to Messiah's pool, the pool of Siloam, they would fill a basin. And after they filled this basin, the high priest and the procession would return to the court where the altar, you know, where they made all the sacrifices, was located. And when they reach what's called the water gate, there's actually a gate entitled the water gate that goes into this area, a leader would blow a chauffeur or a trumpet. It's basically a ram's horn. You know, they'd have a ram's horn, they would blow through it, and that was kind of an ancient trumpet. And they would blow that puppy three times. Something like that. I don't know if it sounded just like that. But they would blow this thing three times, and that told everyone around them, hey, they've reached the water gate. That's what that signified. And right at that moment, that third time that horn is blown, the people would recite Isaiah 12.3. So this is like a coordinated worship service. There's a liturgy here. They followed a pattern. They'd go and get the water. They'd come back at the gate. They'd blow the trumpet three times. The people would recite Isaiah 12.3, which says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. See the connection there? So we're drawing water from the Messiah's pool or the pool of Siloam. They come back, they blow the horn, boom, 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 they're reciting this. All of this has messianic implication. And this particular verse, Isaiah 12, 3, it points to past, a past event and it points to future events. So it's got past implications and future implications. It points to the exodus you know, the time where the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness. And so that's the Exodus period in the wilderness time there. It, it points to that when, 
when God saved His people from physical thirst by providing them with water from a rock. Maybe you've read that story and, and, and that, you know, you, you know about that story where they needed fresh water and God provided water for them. So that significance is tied into this ceremony. So that's the past thing that it points to. And it points to the future, the incarnation where Messiah, the chief cornerstone, right? Ephesians 2.20, God strikes a rock and water comes out of it. And then the future prophetic implication is God sends the rock who is the provider of and satisfier of spiritual thirst. There's the, you know, the future implication where God will save his people from spiritual thirst. So you have this past rescuing of the people in the wilderness with physical water, and then this prophetic implication or meaning is there's a future deliverance through the rock, the true rock, the cornerstone, who will deliver and save God's people from their spiritual thirst. So there's the tie and there's the connection. So when that horn goes off, they're thinking back and they're thinking, ooh, we can't wait for the day that Messiah comes to take care of our spiritual needs. And the amazing thing is he's right on the other side of the gate. (laughs) But they don't know that. Many of them don't know that, but he's on the other side. So after this trumpet is blown three times, three loud blasts with this trumpet, the people recite that text the high priest and the procession would enter the court and then they would begin to circle, slowly circle the altar. And at the time that they begin to circle the altar, the temple choir sings what's called the Hallel. The Hallel is comprised of six psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. And these are uh, preeminently psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Pretty amazing sight, right? This is what's playing out here in the text. And this Hillel was saying for two reasons. First, to thank God for the rain he sent during the previous harvest. So they're singing this song as, as, a, as a way to thank the Lord and praise the Lord for his provision of rain and water. Ultimately, what? Nothing survives without water. And this is a desert region. So they would sing these songs praising God for the rain that he had sent for the previous harvest. That's the first meaning. And then the second is that they would actually, in their singing, they would be petitioning and praying to God to send rain for the next harvest. So they sang the Hallel in thanks and in petition. Thanks for the rain, please send more. And with the choir singing the Hallel, The high priest would, as they're circling, he would then break away from the circle and he would take the basin and approach the altar where those animals were sacrificed for the sins of the people, where the blood of those lambs and bulls was poured out as a temporary propitiation for their sin. He would go to that that place of slaughter right there, that place where, where God reconciles men and women to himself through the blood and death of innocence, innocent animals. He would go to that altar, and then he would begin to pour out that water over the altar, washing it and cleansing it. And that was a, a water sacrifice to God. And this final act of pouring out the water on the altar... It would conclude the ceremony and parade for that day. 
And as I said, it took place in the morning, and they did it every morning. So imagine this playing out in this scene. And on the last day of the Feast of Booths, the day that we're focused on here, this ritual was performed seven times. So it happened in the morning, a little bit, a little bit later, and then again at noon, and then boom, 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 seven times they did this procession, blowing the trumpet and all of that. I don't know about you, but I would have just picked a spot and just stood there. I wouldn't have left because he's going to come back around. Seven times they did this on the last day of the feast, and I think that's why they call it the great day. I think that's the distinction, the great day. And I, and I did read there's a tradition that they added an eighth day, and they really didn't do anything significant on the eighth day. I think this is the seventh day where all of this took place. And it is against this backdrop of that ceremony, right? The water parade and the pouring of the water and the singing of the songs of thanks and the recitation or the reciting of 12.3 of Isaiah. It's, it's against this backdrop. This is what's literally happening. It's against this backdrop that, that Jesus stands up and cries. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I mean, his words are just packed with symbolism. He is, he, is, he is borrowing from what is actually this visual thing that's actually playing out. He's applying it to himself. Now this does echo what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4 where he offered to satisfy her spiritual thirst by giving her living water. You remember the story when she came up to Jacob's well and he's standing there and he says, if you'd asked me, I'd have given you living water. She was just looking to get some water out of that well. So there's some significance there. In some ways, it echoes what Jesus did back in Samaria. But in light of the context of this statement here, in the shadow of the temple at the pinnacle of the Feast of Booths, on the day of the final water-drawing ceremony, such a statement offers an even more robust eschatological declaration. At the point in the ritual where God was beckoned, prayed to, beseeched, cried out to by the people to provide water, the most necessary substance for His people and for life itself. Jesus stands and declares Himself to be not only the provision, but also the provider. His statement not only echoes John 4, it also echoes John 6 where the people came to the synagogue to get more free food. We were in that not too long ago. Instead of satisfying their physical hunger, Jesus offered to satisfy their spiritual hunger. Right? I'll give you the living bread. I will give you the bread of life. I will give you myself. Sure, a physical meal is great and has some benefit, but you need to be nourished and fed and satisfied spiritually, and only I can do that. You must believe. Come to me and believe. And in a similar way, in a striking way, the people had come to the temple to petition God to send rain to satisfy their physical thirst. But Jesus stands up and offers to satisfy their spiritual thirst. It's as if He's saying, you come to this temple and you've been coming to it all week and you've been singing these songs and calling out to God. And I'm telling you, God is here. And I'm here to give you what you truly need. There are 
parallels between what took place in that synagogue in Capernaum and here. A common theme in chapters 6 and 7 is people coming to God to have their physical needs met while remaining completely oblivious to their spiritual needs. Isn't this what sinners do? I mean, if a sinner comes to God at all, he's certainly not coming to Him for salvation, but sometimes sinners just cry out to God because they have an immediate need, but they have no concept or understanding of their spiritual need. As sinners, we tend to focus on on the physical while completely neglecting the weightier matters of the soul. I wouldn't say we tend to. We absolutely do that. Jesus exposed this aspect of the human condition, this terrible tendency, when He refused to meet their physical needs back at Capernaum, when He offered to meet their spiritual needs. It's as if He's telling them, look, You've come for the wrong stuff. You've come for the wrong thing. And in some ways, that's what he's doing in the temple at this very moment as this ceremony is concluding. You want rain. You want water. And you need living water, the kind of which only I can give. That's what he's doing. Let's analyze his invitation. First phrase, if anyone thirsts, this is a broad invitation. If anyone, anyone that can hear him within earshot, anyone there. He didn't just say, if the elect thirst. (laughs) We Calvinists tend to kind of boil it all the way down to that, you know. He said, if anyone thirsts, Anyone. Of course, we know that those whom God predestined will come, but if anyone thirsts, it's a broad invitation. Who are the thirsty? The thirsty are those who recognize the fact that they have a spiritual thirst. And and think about the people that Jesus is, is inviting here. He's been preaching the gospel to them all week. And for two and a half years, you'd think there might be somebody out there that's going, man, I could use a spiritual drink, you know? (sighs) That sounds good. After the gospels just pulverized them for two and a half years or even all week. It would be people that that heard the gospel and, and they were convicted of their sin by the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and by the proclamation of the gospel. And and now they're at this place where they desire relief. In fact, sometimes people are there and they don't even realize uh, something's missing, something's wrong. I realize something. They're just listening intently to find the instruction because they realize, okay, I need to be taken further. Something's wrong. Something's happening in me. The thirsty are those who recognize probably for the first time ever that they're spiritually thirsty. There's something missing and and they realize nothing else can satisfy and take care of it. And I I know that's a ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel. But he puts it out there to everyone that's there. If anyone thirsts, is there anyone here that realizes that they're a sinner? Is there anyone here that realizes that there's no other option 
you know, you almost would think that people, when he said this first part of the phrase, that people were just kind of hanging on his words there. What's he going to say next? Because I know I have a problem, but I don't know what the solution is. Look at the next phrase, let him come to me. So first we see the address, then we see the invitation. Let him come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Jesus invites those who recognized their spiritual thirst, recognize that they're a sinner needing help, needing aid, to come to him, the only source of living water. Living water is mentioned in the next verse. What is living water? I would just say it's the eternal life. That's the easiest way to understand it. Living water is not water that is, you know, teeming with bacterial life. <laughs> it's eternal life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll learn those things in a few moments. Jesus just says, anyone out here realizes they're a sinner. If you're thirsty, let him come to me. He's inviting people to come to him, the source of living water. And remember, there's water being poured and all these things are happening here. Again, the implication, the prophetic implication of the ritual is Messiah's coming. He's going to satisfy us. Jesus is stepping forward as Messiah saying, I'm here. I'm going to satisfy you. Come to me. There's the connection. But it's not just about if you're thirsty. It's not just about just, just go ahead and come to me. There's something that that person must do. The next phrase, and drink. Drinking is figurative. It's a metaphor for believing. When you drink of the Lord. When you take the living water, you are basically believing in Him as Lord and Savior. You are putting your faith, your trust in Him alone for your salvation. So Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to me and believe. Now, I really like the way J.C. Ryle, he wrote this thing here. He gave this broader definition. Jesus invited those who were thirsty to, quote, freely take from Him everything that the soul needs. Mercy, grace, pardon, peace, strength. For He is the fountain of life. It's as if Jesus is saying, let men and women use me as such and I shall be well pleased. Come to me and I will give you all that you need for eternal life and for righteous, holy living. It's an amazing declaration. This could be the boldest, most primary declaration of his Messiahship in the Gospel of John so far. There's no mis mistaking what he's doing here. Well, there is mistaking what he's doing here because we'll see that in a moment, but... What he was doing was he was applying the rituals to himself, declaring himself as the one who can satisfy, who can take care of our truest and deepest needs. 
Imagine the scene with me again as those prayers for rain and, and water were going up to God and as the high priest is pouring the water from the pool of Siloam, Messiah's pool, onto the altar as an offering and sign of Messiah to come, Jesus stands and cries, my paraphrase, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and I will satisfy his thirst. It's precisely what Jesus did here. But this isn't the only thing that Jesus declared. He said more than this. Look at 38. I, I tell you, Jesus was just the greatest preacher to ever walk the earth. He would take something that's playing out right in front of him and, and turn it into the most amazing illustration. I couldn't even begin to do that. I'm looking at that lamp trying to come up with something. Nothing's happening here. Maybe next week when we talk about the light of the world, I'll point to that lamp. Jesus would, he just is phenomenal. He would just take things and, and just apply it. People would be like, oh, I get it. Amazing. And that's what he's doing here. Look at 38. He says this, right? He's continuing in his invitation. Whoever believes in me. Okay, so there's the drinking, right? Whoever believes in me, whoever drinks of me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus issues a scriptural promise that actually can't be found in any singular verse. You can't find it. He gave a promise, but you can't find it in any particular verse. It is reflected. It is a reflected promise. It's an absolute promise. But it's reflected in certain verses, like Proverbs 11, 25, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 9, Zechariah 13, 1. It has to do with what a believer becomes. He or she becomes like a fountain filled with living water. Samuel Bloomfield put it like this, When a man turns to the Lord... He is like a fountain filled with living water, and rivers flow from him to men of all nations and tribes. Isn't that amazing? My paraphrase would be, the one who believes is not only refreshed by the Lord. Okay, so listen to this carefully. The one who believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior is not only refreshed by Him, but he or she becomes a refresher of others as the Lord works through them. That's what 38 means. Now Jesus was obviously pointing to the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in and through a believer's life. That's what he's talking about. Now there was, however, a stipulation to this promise of the Holy Spirit. He would not be given in the broadest sense and in the way that Jesus is speaking of here until after a certain time. Something had to transpire before the Spirit would be given in this way where the people of God would literally become wellsprings of living water. And John points to this in verse 39. Look at it with me. And John says this, just to give us clarity on what Jesus meant in 38. Now this he said about the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, notice how it's capitalized. 
whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Prior to the ascension, you know, Jesus' return to heaven, the Holy Spirit had not been, it had been, He had been given, but in a very narrow sense. We don't want to say that the Holy Spirit was never given before or never came upon men. That would absolutely not be true. King David had the Spirit, and at one point when he was wrapped up in sin, he said, let not your Spirit be taken from me. John the Baptist, who was really an Old Testament prophet, had the Holy Spirit. There were men and people who had the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. They were anointed with the Spirit to perform certain tasks and to do certain things for God. But prior to the ascension of Jesus, that was the extent of the Holy Spirit's presence and work on earth. But after the ascension, He would be given in the broadest sense to every believer equally. Now we see an expression of the fulfillment of this promise Jesus made, and it's, you know, there's allusions to it in the Old Testament. We see an expression of the fulfillment of this promise occur about a week after the ascension on the day of Pentecost, don't we? where the Holy Spirit comes down and fills a room of 120 people and they all are completely filled with the Holy Spirit and they go down and begin to preach the gospel and 3,000 men are saved and they're all filled with the Spirit. And it's just amazing. So we see a, an expression of the film. And I say it's an expression because this work is not done. Because every time a person repents and believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is there in them and they have the Holy Spirit. So it's still happening. This is a, an ongoing promise. Did you know that about yourself, that if you are a, a disciple, a believer, you believe in Jesus Christ, that you have the Holy Spirit in you, that the Holy Spirit in you is the source of power for godly living, for gospel ministry, for really anything and all things that have any eternal weight and value? That the Holy Spirit is the one who, who works with our conscience to help lead us away from sin. Or if we do get in, in, you know, involved in sin, the Holy Spirit's the one who, who convicts us of that sin and leads us to repentance. If the Holy Spirit had not been given in the way Jesus said here to believers, we'd be uh, way worse off. You know, King David knew what that was like when he got wrapped up in sin and he's begging God not to take his spirit because he knows who he is with the spirit, but he knows who he really will be without the spirit. You know, my life is a mess from time to time, but boy, if you take the spirit from me, I can't make any guarantees. It's going to get ugly. It's the Holy Spirit in you. And the Holy Spirit not only works the ministry of the gospel in you and empowers you to fight sin and to press on and to fight the good fight of faith and all of those wonderful things, but Him in you is the mark of your salvation and inheritance. Read the book of Ephesians. If you have the Holy Spirit, that is the guarantee that you have a heavenly inheritance. And those who have the Holy Spirit obviously are going to live differently than those who don't. They ain't going to be perfect but they're going to be different. This is what he's talking about here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit being given to believers 
in a way that has never happened before. This is like a new covenant church promise. That's what he's talking about here. Prior to the ascension, the Holy Spirit was given in, in, in a narrow sense, but after the ascension, the key to the Holy Spirit being given is that he, he, he isn't going to be given in the fullest measure until Jesus is ascended and takes his place back at the right hand of God. He has to be glorified before the Spirit is given in this fuller measure. I like what MacArthur says here. He talks about some of the ministry of the Holy Spirit prior to uh, Pentecost. It says, prior to Pentecost, the Spirit was the author of repentance and the power behind regeneration. He always has been. He also illuminated believers in the face of persecution. But still after Pentecost, which is really when Jesus sent the Spirit in, fullest, in the fullest sense, he says, still after Pentecost, the Spirit was given to believers in a new fullness that became normative for all believers since. So you've got the ascension, and then a week later, you've got Pentecost. And from that moment forward, this promise is now being fulfilled. The Spirit is being given in the fullest sense to every believer, not just certain people for certain tasks. Jesus reiterated this scriptural promise just prior to His betrayal and arrest. In John 16, 7, He told His disciples, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Well, Helper there is capitalized. And what Jesus, Jesus is referring to is a who, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would not be sent in this broader sense until after Jesus returns to His throne in heaven and is glorified. Then Jesus, when He takes His seat at the right hand of the Father. And at that point, he says, Spirit, go. The Spirit comes down, and that is on the day of Pentecost. Bam! And all these people are filled with the Spirit. It's amazing. That's what he's talking about here. Let's see. Jesus' invitation paraphrased. If anyone is spiritually thirsty, let him come to me and drink by faith. And he who comes to me and drinks by faith, he who believes in me shall become a fountain of the Holy Spirit where rivers of living water flow. That's what he means in 37 and 38. This is his invitation to the people. I love it. It's not just about coming and having your thirst satisfied right? It's not just about your refreshment. It's about you becoming a refresher of others as well. That's an amazing promise. See, our salvation isn't just for us. It's that we would live that out and proclaim the gospel, and God has promised that His Word doesn't return void. And in our proclamations of the gospel, as that living water flows through us, that God takes that message and draws people that are thirsty. He makes them thirsty and draws them to His Son. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the gospel being played out through us. It's amazing. So that's His invitation. Come and be satisfied, and you can become a refresher. You will, because the living water will flow through you right out of you. It'll be me flowing through you is what He's saying. How do the people respond to this? 
let's look at the next section. Section 2, the response, 40 through 52, we see four types of responses here or four types of people represented here. Okay? This is where it gets a little more topical and practical. Number one, those who partially believed. You think, well, how can you... Yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but not the right way. There's, I think, probably more people in the world that believe something about Jesus, but not the right way. I think there's more people in the church today, in the visible church today, that believe something about Jesus, but not in the right way. I hope that's not true of us. It's totally possible. I remember one time Dan's son, Colby, preached a sermon called The Almost Christian. It's very true. Verse 40, we see that those who partially believed. They're right, but not all the way. It says, when they heard these words, this is some in the crowd, right? Some of the people said, this really is the prophet, capital P. This really is the prophet. Now, let me tell you something. These people are 100% right. But he's not just the prophet. Prophet, capital P, is a reference to the Mosaic prophecy. Mo, uh, Moses prophesied that one like him, a, a greater prophet, God prophesied this through Moses, that a greater prophet, like a capital P prophet, would come later on. He'd be like Moses, but greater and better. And, and that's a messianic prophecy. It points to the Messiah to come. So there's truth to their, mm, their affirmation or not that, their declaration. Wow, listen to what this guy is saying and look at how he's applying these things. And this is unbelievable. This guy, no doubt, he's the prophet. So they're right, but not all the way. Because I think what they're thinking is this guy is like the Moses who was supposed to come. Not necessarily the one who Moses pointed to. And unfortunately, a lot of Jews in that day and probably today are really hung up on Moses. I mean, that's, that's their guy. They're putting it all in him. And, and if, if Moses were standing here, I'd say, Moses, I'd have to speak his language. I don't know how to do that. But I would say, Moses, can you save anyone? He'd say, heck no. I can't save anyone. Only the, only the Messiah, the one that I pointed to, can save people. Moses is not a savior. He never will be. So their answer is good and accurate, but it falls short. It's not enough. It's not enough to say that Jesus was a good man. It's not enough to say that he was a great teacher. It's not enough to say with Women's Month or whatever the heck is going on that he was a liberator of women. It's not enough to say that. That falls short of who he is. All the women are like, I'm going to kill that pastor because it is Women's Month. It's not enough. It's not enough. He's not just a prophet. He's not just the prophet. He's more. So there's a partial belief here, but an unwillingness to go all the way. But not with the second group. Number two, those who fully believed. 41a, others said, right? They're responding. So you have like, all of a sudden you have like this argument, like people are going back and forth. So this dude's definitely the prophet. And these ones over here are like, no, that's cool, but he's the Christ. That's the right answer. Christ Hebrew, that's, Christ is the, the Greek equivalent Hebrew Messiah. Some in this group that are being invited are saying, this is our Messiah. This is our Christ. 
That's the answer. That's the answer you want to give. It's not just the prophet. He's the prophet and he's the Christ. And if you just say he's the Christ, you're safe. You don't have to understand him as, the, as just the prophet. You need to understand him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who can satisfy your spiritual thirst, the one who can save you from God's justice and wrath. He's the Christ. And by the way, his, name isn't, his last name isn't Christ, like Phil Baker. It's not Jesus and his last name is Christ. That's a title. He's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The one whom God sent took on the form of a man to live and walk out the law in perfection and earn our righteousness to give himself as a ransom for many on the tree, to be nailed to it, brutalized, destroyed, to have all of God's wrath and justice land upon his shoulders for the Father to turn away, to forsake him, for him to die for Him to be buried, for Him to rise, for our justification. He's the Christ. He's that Christ, the one who came, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who was buried, the one who rose, the one who reigns today, the one who has ascended in all glory, rules the universe, rules the heavens. That's Christ. You must believe that. You must believe that about him. And these people are saying, wow, did you just see what he did? I've been listening to him for a while. This is the Christ. This is the Christ. This is, no, 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 not just the prophet. The Christ. When you hear people say things, well, he's this, he's that, or whatever, you can agree because he is a good man and all that, but you say, no, no, he's, he, yes, but he's the Christ. He's the Christ. Do you believe in him? That's key, because people today will tell you all sorts. Well, he's good, he's this and that. Number three, we now have those who were confused. Those who were confused, 41B through 43. Some in there, okay, so you got four groups, right? Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So they're hearing this other group say, this is the Christ, this is the Christ, this is... This is the Messiah. And these other ones are like, but, but I, I think he's supposed to come from somewhere else. I don't think it's him. They said this, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And says, so there was division among the people over him. So somehow there were people in here that were like, okay, prophet, okay, Christ. I don't know, man. I've heard over and over that this dude is from Galilee. And according to my study of Scripture, the Messiah, the Christ, doesn't come out of Galilee. He doesn't, according to Scripture. He comes out of exactly what they said. He's from the offspring of King David. He's from that kingly line, right? The Messiah's got to come from Bethlehem, that village, the city of David, right? They're right about this. They're wrong about Jesus, where Jesus actually really came from. I think this was a rumor spun by the religious leaders to confuse people. And I know, I know the religious leaders knew where he was from because these people kept records that you couldn't believe on genealogy and stuff. 
They appear to be confused because it's like, he's the Christ. Well, let me consider this. I don't know if that's true because I've heard he's from Galilee. And according to why I understand what the scripture says, he's got to be from over here. And, but, you know, Jesus is from there. He, he is from Judea. He, he is from Bethlehem. He, he is from the line of David. You know, every Christmas, we just had one. We, we talk about that, where he was born and... You know, and the manger and all that, and the star and the wise men. And they, they, they just didn't understand. So, so they're not right at all. They're just totally, totally confused. I'm not sure if they were disbelieving like the next group. Next group. They, just, they were just confused about where he had come from. They were believing the lies and rumors, the, the fake news. Some of these people watch CNN, unfortunately. Can't get a straight report. Oh, no, he's going to start talking about Trump. I ain't bringing him into this. Number four, those who just straight up disbelieved. This is the rejection group, 44 through 49. <laughs> look, at, look at the jump here. So there was, div- in 43, so there was division among the people over him, right? And then it goes to 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him. <laughs> what? That's like zero to 60 in a half a second. There were some there that hated him so badly, and this is the religious leaders, they wanted him arrested. In fact, right there in that moment, they tell the guards, temple guards, get your butts over here and go over and arrest that guy. He just screwed up our worship service. They wanted to arrest him. And it says, but no one laid hands on him. And we know why, right? Because his time had not yet come. It didn't matter. He could do whatever he wanted. That must have been frustrating for people. I'm trying to grab him, but my arm doesn't work. I don't know what's going on here, but I don't even know what it looked like. They can't get him. Get him! (laughs) They can't get the dude. It must have been a scene. It says in 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? <laughs> I love that, right? Hey, cops, get over here. Go over there and arrest him. They come back empty-handed. And they're like, why did you come back empty-handed? We just told you to go get him. What are you doing? 46, the officers tell him why. No one ever spoke like this man, exclamation point. What do they mean? They'd never heard anyone preach like this or say these things. These guys are just blown away. Read it again. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Okay, that's not the answer the Pharisees were looking for. Okay, go arrest him. You don't understand. I can't. No one ever spoke like this man. That is such an interesting phrase. I almost feel like these, these cops, these police right here, like became believers right there or something, because that's not really something that unbelievers say. I don't, I don't know if they were converted. I don't think they were, but they were blown away by what he was saying, and then, and then somehow they, they couldn't lay hands on him, so all of that came together, and all they could do is come back and say, no one ever spoke like this man. Talk about a failure of duty. And then the Pharisees responded in 47, have you also been deceived? 
Meaning, do you now believe in him too? Are you stupid? Get over there and arrest him. And, and they say this in 48, have any, listen to this statement, listen to this pride. Listen to the example. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? You know how you're to look at that? Have, have any of us, the ones who get all of this and understand all of these things, do you see any of us following along with him? That's what they're saying. You haven't seen any of us who are the spiritual authorities, who have the authority, who have the weight. You haven't seen any of us give ourselves over to him. And then they make this statement about the crowd, which is just ruthless. Okay, so, so you're not going to arrest him, and you're saying that no one ever spoke like him. We're the authorities, and none of us are going along with him, which means you're bozos and idiots. And you know what? Here's the bottom line, 49. This crowd does not know the law of God is, is accursed. We're surrounded by imbeciles, is what they say. We're surrounded by people who have become enamored with this guy, who, who have become deceived because they don't know the law. And, and if you know the law like we do, you're not going to be deceived and fall into this guy's deception and, and, and tricks, is what they're saying. But just the pride and just the disbelief. But in the next two verses, we discover that Jesus had an ally within the ranks of the Pharisees. This is just awesome. This is spectacular. Look at 50 and 51. <laughs> Look at that, 50. Nicodemus, remember that dude? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, speaking of going to Jesus, had gone to Jesus before, and who was one of them, meaning he was a Pharisee, said to them, the other Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Wow. These guys are piping hot, ticked off. They can't arrest him. They can't stop him. The guards have failed. They think everyone is a loser and is under some kind of deceptive curse. And then Nicodemus, like, throws fuel on the fire. Nicodemus had previously come to Jesus to discuss his miracles, but the Lord changed the subject and talked about how true salvation consists of a new heart, regeneration, a new faith that's believing Jesus alone, a new love, repentance, right? Remember John 3, 1 through 21? Remember that conversation? Nicodemus' religion and his beliefs didn't square with Jesus' teachings. He believed that he could earn his way with God. That's typical false religion. So what did he do? He walked away from that conversation, uh, discouraged and semi-disgruntled. He thought Jesus was going to affirm all the good things he was doing. And Jesus said, eh, you're not going to go into the kingdom unless you're born again. And here's what that looks like. And Nicodemus is like, I don't think that's me. And he was... Not thrilled. I mean, he wasn't a jerk, but he wasn't at a good place after that conversation. But the seeds of the gospel had been planted, and they didn't take long to take root. The Spirit had taken Jesus' gospel preaching in that conversation and, and put it down in this man, and it began to come out. And here in verses 50 and 51, we see a, a different Nicodemus, don't we? He went from disgruntled to defender he went from enemy to ally. That's amazing. That's the work of the gospel. That is the work of the gospel, that, that the work of the gospel is to take an enemy of God 
and, and the, the Holy Spirit takes that gospel and, and puts it in that man, and the Holy Spirit comes into that man, and he transforms that man from an enemy, that woman from an enemy to an ally, to a defender of God. And that's what happened here. He literally interrupts his fellow Pharisees, right? Really the most powerful religious guys in the whole land. He interrupts them and warns them not to break their own law, the law of due process. <laughs> they were seeking to arrest and kill Jesus. Nicodemus intervenes. You're getting ahead of yourselves. You can't do this. Our law forbids it. Man must first be heard and given a fair trial before you can lay a hand on him like this. That's what he says. How did his fellow Pharisees react to him? 5-2, they replied, <laughs> Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This was their way of saying, You must be from where he's from, and this is why you're defending him. Boy, all you Galileans are on the same team. You're like those darn Raiders fans. You just never give up. That's, that's what they're, they're like. You got to be kidding. Did Nicodemus just try to, what is going on? Oh, he must be from Galilee. That's why. And they, they tell him, they warn him, you better check the record, homie. No prophet will arise out of Galilee. And they were right. But this prophet didn't arise out of Galilee. He rose out of Judea and Bethlehem. And these guys failed to realize that. They either failed to realize where Jesus was actually from. I don't think it was ignorance. I think that they refused to acknowledge the fact that he was from the right place, the place of Messiah. This is willful disobedience. This isn't, man, I'll just tell you, they're just perpetuating a lie. They were the ones who began the lie and perpetuated it. They knew where Jesus was from. And Jesus lived in Galilee, but he was not from Galilee. He was from Judea. More specifically, Bethlehem, the birthplace of Messiah. And you know what? I'm pretty sure Nicodemus knew this about Jesus. He didn't believe the lies of his peers. You know, these, these men spun all sorts of lies. When Jesus rose from the grave, they spun the lie that his body had been stolen out of the tomb. That's the lie they spun. They've just spun lies. They've been spinning lies for almost 2,000 years because they don't want to face the music. I think Nicodemus knew where Jesus was truly from, and this helped play into uh, him becoming convinced of Jesus' messianic identity. Of course, that's all the work of the Holy Spirit, all glory to God. But we see a different Nicodemus here, don't we? We see him later to helping Joseph of Arimathea prepare Jesus' body for the tomb after Jesus was taken down from the cross. The gospel had done its work in, in that man's life through the Spirit. Closing. Question. Are you spiritually thirsty? You've heard the gospel. Are you convicted of your sin by the Holy Spirit? 
Do you desire relief? If you're thirsty, come to Jesus. Why would I end this sermon with anything less than his own invitation to people? How foolish it would be for me to run with something else. Are you spiritually thirsty? You have heard the gospel today, and if you've been here any other weekend, you've heard it then too. You've probably heard it on the outside by a friend or somebody else. Who knows how many times you've heard the gospel? Life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That salvation is in Him alone. That He alone is the living water and can satisfy your spiritual thirst. And He alone is the, the bread of life and, and the living bread and heaven's bread that He can satisfy your spiritual hunger. I don't know how many more metaphors Jesus needs to throw at us, but He's it. If you're thirsty, come. If if your spiritual belly is growling, come. You know, when you're physically hungry, you eat, don't you? When you're spiritually, or not spiritually thirsty, when you're physically thirsty, you, you drink. You drink something. And, 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 Your soul and your spirit is far more important than your physical body. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, you know, you realize now that you're a sinner and you want relief, you want forgiveness and cleansing. You want a new life. You got to come to Jesus. You got to come to Jesus. He's the, he's the only source of living water. He's the only source of eternal life. And when you come to Jesus, you can't just come to him and just stand there and go. You have to drink. You have to believe. By believing, you you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need Christ, and and you realize and acknowledge what He can do for you, and you and you put your faith. In Him. You put your trust in Him. You know what trust is like. You just put your trust in Him. I believe that Jesus is my source. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. Believe in Him. Believe in Him as Lord and Savior. Bow your knee to Him. Put your full trust in Him alone for your salvation. He's, you do this, it's not only going to satisfy your spiritual thirst, your spiritual hunger. He's going to make you a fountain. A fountain of the Holy Spirit where rivers of living water The Spirit Himself flows through you. You will not only be refreshed, you will become a refresher of others. God will use you and He will work through you. So when I say come to Him and drink, For those of us who have already come to Jesus and and drank, believed in Him, 
Are we living as fountains where the Holy Spirit is flowing through us and bringing refreshment to others? Or are we living as old, dried-up cisterns? You see, we do this when we keep the Holy Spirit and God's good gifts to ourselves. When we're not serving the cause of Christ. Are you a fountain where the Spirit flows through you or are you like an old dried up well? I'll end with a great quote from Martin Luther. Well, this is uh, just... He said, He who comes to Jesus shall be so furnished with the Holy Spirit that he shall not only be quickened and refreshed himself and delivered from thirst, but he shall also be a strong vessel, a strong stone vessel from which the Holy Spirit in all his gifts shall flow to others, refreshing, comforting, and strengthening them. Church, it's, it's time to, to open the valve and let the Spirit flow through us. It's time. It's time. Open the valve. Refresh those who need refreshing. I can tell by some of your faces that you've had a hard week. You need to be refreshed. I hope this message has refreshed you, but I think equally important, and maybe even beyond that, that the person sitting next to you would let the Spirit work through them, that they would be a fountain, and they would refresh you. Refresh those who need refreshing. Encourage a brother or sister in the Lord with the truth. Use use your God-given time and talent to, to serve your church and neighbors. Share the gospel with someone who does not know Jesus. These are just ways. You could even invite people to our Easter service where they can come and hear the gospel. And maybe God, through the Spirit, will refresh them, save them and refresh them and, and make them a refresher of others. It's on April 1st. Open the valve. Okay? Open the valve. Open it and knock the handle off. And don't try to go to Orchard and get some fittings. In two weeks, you'll be like, ah, shut this down. Just let it go. Amen? It's a perfect time of year to to live as a fountain. It's Easter. 